that dirty bone here, Simon. Come out now and fight. You need to be more like a dog. We don't need a bunch of cats in here. Yeah, looking in the mirror. Be a dog. Whatever happens in leash, it's always a scandal. Why do you think that was? Probably because we're always drinking and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> There's no smoke without fire. That goes to light. I met Tommaso Shea one day and he said, I'm sick of that northern crowd. He said, if they went set dancing twice a week, we'd all be set dancing twice a week. I can remember a lad, Jay Booth, right? And he was getting sick, right lying like that, <laughs> looking at me like, and I'm going, this is not helping me here. Every man, woman and monkey in me all is, is nearly writing them off. Shake the bucket! All right, you're very welcome to uh, our panel discussion this afternoon. Up for discussion today, when are star players not really star players? Is there something wrong in our sporting culture when it comes to closing out games? We have a few more topics besides. I'm delighted to say we've got Michael Foley of the Sunday Times, also the award-winning author of Kings of September with us, Tommy Carr, former Dublin manager, former Dublin footballer, and Neil Francis, former Ireland second row. Lads, you're all very welcome. Hey, Chair. Michael, particularly you. I have to say thanks very much for coming in. I know it's, um, it's difficult to take a man off his stag. It is, Ger. To get us to talk about sport on the radio. Anton for the team, you know. That's Very good. Anton for the team, Anton for Newstalk, you know. You, um, you are actually on your stag weekend. It's, yeah, well, yeah, I'm on it. It hasn't quite begun yet. That's okay. Because I'm here. <laughs> but uh, this isn't actually my stag right now. This isn't what I'd exactly planned. But there you go. Yeah. Well, we c- congratulations. So, thanks very much. Is it difficult for sports people to have stags while they're still participants, active sports people, Neil? Was it, um, was it an issue? I took my time. I, I think it was 36 when I had mine. Um, and um, so it was, it was less of an issue. Yeah, I I think I, would, I was gone about two years, and and it was pretty. It wasn't a tame affair. I saw them all to bed. Yeah, um, <laughs> I went on Simon Gagan's stag to Las Vegas. Now that's a that was a different story. On while you were all still playing, uh, no, he he had he had just finished, uh, but there was only six of us, so there was no escape, so there was no hiding, and uh, it was just madness. So uh, I can't say that much about it, but it was uh, what goes to Vegas. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we might as well have been in Bally de Hob. We had this kind of rule that once you once you got out of the the lift, you couldn't pass a bar without having a drink. So we actually never got out of the hotel. I think we we, we got to we got to Caesars once, and that was it. It was just the mad ferret. He was uh, he was good uh, good fun. Yeah, was he as uh, live wire off the field as he was on it? He's a peculiar peculiar guy, Simon. He is a very funny guy, and and you either got a sense of humour or you didn't. And I, I hooked up with him in London. I played with London London Irish for two seasons, and that's where I got to know him. So I was very close with him. But uh, he wouldn't have been everybody's cup of tea within the squad. He was very much appreciated, but um, you know, not uh, not for everyone. Uh, was it the kind of practical joker type? Thing or no, he, he was very upfront, and uh, and he, you know, he'd he'd speak his mind, and he didn't care if he upset any sensibilities. Yeah. very very direct guy. And was that unusual for that group of players? Maybe uh, it was. He he was unique in every in every respect, and um, yeah, a lot of the guys were kind of fairly, you know, when he'd say something, you know, they they sort of stand back and sort of say, Gee, did, he, did he say that?" <laughs> and and he did. Um, so he's still he's calmed down a bit now he's no longer the mad ferret uh, that feeds nicely into something we're going to talk about a little bit later on so I might ask you for some more detail on that Tommy what about Stags uh, were you an, an active player still uh, I was 32 when I had my Stag but it was very quite a fair we couldn't get anybody to go on it I think there was me and one other it was my brother something like that both but sportsmen think, of course I think I think in the GA uh, they're very the players are very conscious of when they put their Stags on I think you'll find a lot of them in October November when there's not much happening because GA managers don't really like to hear about Stags in April May June those type of months um, but I think they're probably a bigger affair now than they were maybe 10 or 15 years ago I think it was just one night out on the town yeah. was a stag but I think you know Mick is in the middle of it so we're assuming it's a three day job <laughs> and and it's just as well we're on radio because he looks an awful state of <laughs> <laughs> I actually looked at this all the time Tommy thanks very much it takes an awful amount of money to look this bad I can tell you <laughs> No, I'm glad. No, I'm glad. I'm, gl- I'm glad I came in. Jer- got a couple of notes there from Fran and all, but uh, not passing the bar and all that sort of thing. I think I might be able to lift this stag from mediocre to slightly, maybe acceptable. Less, you know? less than mediocre. Less than <laughs> mediocre. <laughs> uh, the the fact though that you kind of had you finished or f- were finishing up at that stage, or was it an off season thing? Did you yeah, purposely it was, it make was it an off season thing? It was actually on season, but it was a a quite affair, um, and I was finishing up. Uh, not by my own choice, but I was finishing up, um, and it was just—I uh, suppose one of those things that hadn't yet to do. One of those boxes you had to tick along the way because 
everybody has to have some sort of a stag so it was um, out of the way job yeah um, was it a big thing as, as part of the football culture though as a teammate would you have gone or any other teammates oh yeah of course we would but I think you know you talk about the culture uh, it was just another it was more I think it was a case then that it was it was the the drink thing was nearly more a part of the culture than it is now. So you because didn't even need the after excuse. yeah because absolutely absolutely it was yeah. just another excuse because I remember you know when I started off the Sunday league games was an excuse to go and drink pints of Sunday night and uh, even the championship games were same thing and the following day uh, that wouldn't really be tolerated now. You don't see National League teams going off on a Sunday evening drinking pints yeah. out around town. It just doesn't done. They're in the pool or they're uh, rehabbing or they're recovering and resting and doing all the right things. So it's been ironed out of the culture that was, I think, in, in my time. Yeah, I suppose the same thing is kind of... Uh, go on, sorry. No, I'm just going to say, I'd said it was some league matches back, certainly depending on the team, but back in the 70s and 80s when every league match was like a stag, you'd go out on a Sunday That's night interesting, yeah. and yeah. it couldn't be Monday. Yeah, and could, you'd, yeah. I can remember very, very well talking to a few guys for who would have played in that era and it would, mm. might be, you'd be finished up on by, by Tuesday, mm. but you'd start to be, you know, Tuesday be sort of a standard Kind of yeah yeah it's we, grand we up yeah, yeah that's that's grand it's a quiet we, weekend we went out for a few beers after the game and the next thing it was like Wednesday yeah you know yeah. that'd be fine and yeah. sometimes it wouldn't be Tuesday if it was John McCarthy and PJ Buckley <laughs> and fellas like that it wouldn't be Tuesday it might be Tuesday the following week <laughs> <laughs> Fran I presume the um, drink culture in rugby has obviously completely changed as well since uh, the advent of professionalism. Um, but was it as bad? Was the drink culture as bad as people say it was, or has it been hyped a bit in retrospect? Yeah, that's the, the correct term, hyped a bit in, in retrospect. I mean, they've taken a, a lot of the good out of the game in, in the sense of the fact that they have um, they've wiped this aspect of it clean. Um, I think I, I think the guys now have a have a pretty good. They have a hit out when it's required. Yeah, you know, beer is it's still an essential part of the game. So they, that's they they do do it after after the even in the Six Nations they have to you know there's nothing spontaneous. So, you know, you, you have a Sunday game and you play in the Six Nations. You know, it's very hard to, to go on the charge after that. Or or, or if you have a, you know, and, and I, I t- totally disagree with it because, you know, you, you contact sport, you play a test on a, on a Saturday and then a following Saturday you have another test, which is very, very hard to recover from. So in that window, there's nothing. There can be no alcohol. Maybe, I, I think maybe in the, in the you know, the two-week tests, you know, they might have a, an opportunity to have a, to have a hit out. Um, and again, sort of the World Cup or when they're on tour, you know, again, there's there there are defined nights when when you can actually go. So there's no spontaneity where you can say, okay, I, f- I, f- I feel a few brewskis coming on. Let's yeah. let's give it the holly, and and that's you know, and they have to do that because um, you know they're back training again literally the next day. Yeah, but I think it's the it's probably the ethos of team sport because if you take the individual sports, the boxing, uh, the cyclists, the runners. Uh, they don't do that type of thing you know mm. once their event is over they go back the next day for training I think it was part of the social aspect of team sport uh, and I'm interested Neil would say that it's it's unfortunate that, and it is to a degree maybe it's unfortunate because nearly playing sport whether it's rugby or whether it's uh, GA it's probably got less social uh, for the players who are involved in it it's more business like now even for the GA players than it is social there was a great mix of uh, sociability to it which has disappeared out of the game I would actually say that the rugby players the professional rugby players are probably because they're professional they can actually go out a bit more often than the amateur GA players who are having to lead these Spartan lifestyles um, because they know that their recovery time is going to be less. So mm. if you do have a mad night out in the middle of the Six Nations, you can kind of have a day to sleep it off and then get back to training. And well, uh, one of the things, and we get a lot of guidance from, you know, from Sansa and, and south of the equator, like you, you see an awful lot of players binned and, and having to stand down because, you know, they, you know, particularly in the Super 15 where they, they head over to, you know, Cape Town or so you head over to Sydney and, you know, you, and they just seem to go mad. Yeah, and and I mean, you see Zach Guilford now. I mean, there there is a big drink problem. There is a drink culture there in 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 that particular competition. Graham uh, Henry said that they were amazed at the level of drinking that went on on All Black team. Any any time the All Blacks got together as a team, when they took over, it was like a training session, and then a mad piss up, and then the next day they come back 
and they do the training session and they go on a mad piss up again and they were kind of like really this is what the All Blacks do now is it this is when he took over oh when he took so over it's, it's yeah. eight seasons nine seasons ago at this stage mm. whatever whenever it was and they had to work very hard to change that well they, they, they calmed it down certainly but it seems to be prevalent again and they seem to be at it again uh, more often yeah Mick has texted in to say most GAA club teams used to go on the rip after weekend matches all the time so stags were just a different name for doing what they were doing anyway which I think is kind of the point <laughs> that's, that's basically the point we were yeah, making yeah. uh, Dan in Sandyford says if I was on radio at this stage of my stag I'd be wearing a toga and carrying an inflatable sheep check out Newstalk TV how does that, he know I'm not that is, well, I was about to say that's exactly how Mick Foley is dressed just this afternoon just don't have a sheep maybe it's not a sheep uh, Michelle has also texted in to say I live in Carrick and Shannon and I can't walk down the street at weekends with the stags and hens that take over the town it's a nightmare on that note, we might draw a veil over the, the stag discussion. 53106 is the text number. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was uh, I was watching a bit of the Liverpool documentary last night when um, the chief executive walked into the dressing room after the two-all draw between Liverpool and uh, I think it was Manchester City and the players were all disappointed because they thought that they were going to win the game. And the, the slightly cloying voiceover is uh, talking about Ian Eyre saying, you know, he doesn't have much experience of football, but he knows exactly what to say in these circumstances because he's been around big time sports so often. And this is over footage of him shaking hands with players and immediately walking on and not actually saying anything. It was a real kind of don't actually speak, don't try not to look too stupid. And it just got me thinking about um, post-match the dressing rooms and meeting dignitaries and then obviously I was reminded Neil of the story that you told on Off the Ball recently um, about yeah. a, a chance meeting with a, a dignitary from South Africa mm. we uh, we played uh, England in, in uh, Twickenham and we got absolutely hoped and um, they don't have any showers in the, in, the, in, the, in the changing rooms so they have these fantastic baths they have about 9 or 10 baths and whatever they do the, the, the temperature of the baths are just fantastic so my arse was in a sling coming off the pitch. England, very big, strong forward pack, and they just, you know, really just hit us. Anyway, um, so I was in in the bath, and we're having a few beers, and uh, somebody said, um, "Oh, John Major and uh, F. W. De Klerk are in uh, are in the dressing room." So I said, "Jesus, better go up and say hello to them." So I got out of the bath, stark naked, and walked over, shook hands in the nude with John Major head of the Commonwealth and FW clerk and chatting away and you know I, I wasn't kind of aware of it and they weren't they weren't at or at you know there was no unease there as well and the clerk knew his rugby Major I don't think had a rashers but he was just kind of shown around you know and we had a glass of champagne and they didn't bat an eyelid <laughs> didn't bat an eyelid I went back in sat down in my bath See you, lads. <laughs> That's great. great to see they were comfortable with your new dignity. You know, you. <laughs> Get a good insight into the cabinet meetings I think in Downing Street. Yeah. So, uh, we, it, it was funny. Well, it, it, his, I think his, his missus was murdered. I think the clerk's wife was murdered in Santon years later. I met her, I think, in the, in the Rose Room. So when you leave the dressing room, you go up to the Rose Room and I met her for a few minutes. But I think 10 years later, a bit later, she was, she was murdered by her security guard so a bit of tragedy there but yeah it, it is uh, it, it is funny they're, they're, particularly if you don't have a connect you know uh, you, you know sort of you don't mind selectors and a few other you know maybe if the president comes in but certainly journalists um, or anybody who had no connect with the team and coming in and standing or smoking and just kind of hanging around and it, I just didn't like it at all. How were the journalists there the whole time throughout your international career? No, there very few of them came in and you know and guys who would be knifing you you know throughout the course of the of the week before and after you know and they're just kind of sitting there and I there's something sacrosanct about the you know the dressing room and I I, I didn't like having people there you know sort of good or bad times you know particularly a bad dressing room you know even a good dressing room. so they. You know, where do they get the right to come in and sort of say, well, you, you know, you had a big win and we'll come in and join in with you. Whereas, yeah. you know, previous week we've had a big loss and, you know, nobody's there. So um, I, I just didn't like it. And team is, you know, the dressing room is for the team. Yes. Yeah. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. The dressing room is now very much yeah. for the team. And GA, uh, yeah, but yeah, it, 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 wasn't it, it has developed very much that way. Uh, I mean, I would remember days where the doors were open and anybody walked in and that was it. Uh, beforehand it was quite restrictive and management and managers were quite protective about the changing room but afterwards it was you could hardly get your have a shower and get your clothes back on you wouldn't have space space to do it but 
Uh, I suppose dignitaries visiting change rooms, yeah. Bertie Ahern would have been one who would have visited uh, Dublin change rooms and then you know, I'm not so sure was as a, a, a political opportunity. A political opportunity. Yeah. Well, they would arrive at the door with the right. with their entourage, and admission would have been automatic because of who they were. And in fairness, they went around, they shook hands with people. But that was, was this when you were managing Dublin. When I was managing and playing, but when I was managing Dublin, I was in Thurles when we drew with Kerry in the initial quarter final. When we were beaten in the replay, then there was no sign of there was no <laughs> sign of anybody coming in, but. The change room has is sacrosanct and it is uh, and it should be for the players and I would be like what Neil is saying in terms when we either won or lost you wanted that 10 or 15 minutes alone with the team not with anybody else in it and it is like and it's not doing down the media but yeah it was when fellas were slating you they come in and they'd be clapping you on the back one the next Sunday and then you don't see them after that and you kind of get the feeling, well, why should they share in the enjoyment and the satisfaction of... And I think it was just kind of a more a family thing than anything else. It's like somebody intruding in a You're family get-together. Absolutely. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I was. I remember when I started out, knowing journalism, going into the dressing room was your, your bog-standard thing. You just went in after the games. And it was always I always found it a very weird thing to have to do because you could be going into the dressing room and literally, let's say if it was somewhere... Cork now has very small dressing rooms. Thurless would be quite small. You could be standing on a fella's trousers like yeah. you know what I mean mm. and, and you'd see people doing this and be kind of going well you know whatever like about being in here you shouldn't be standing on his, on his gear it was always a very strange sort of experience going in now I have to say looking back now some of the my abiding memories I'd say even when I'm when I'm old and senile I still remember some of the things I saw in dressing rooms just directly after games yeah um, like, it's far, by far the best material I ever found working as a journalist that you got yeah. from particularly from GAA because yeah. but you have but, to go but in make, wh- why did you come in like were you told by editors go in and get a story no. or were, were, like what, what well, why, my, did, why did you feel you, uh, I'm only asking now why yeah. did you feel you had a right to come into the GAA well at the room? time at the time I think it was kind of a standard in my, in my experience it was a standard procedure that after the game if you wanted to get quotes or whatever there was no kind of formal press conference there was nowhere so else just to get post match access you couldn't get any post match access mm-hmm. only to stand outside the dressing room door and eventually the door would open and the lads like lads come on away in and you could go in and you might find Paddy O'Shea God rest him just stark naked right there in the middle of the dressing room and I tell you that's one hell of a way to deflect a difficult question at the start of the thing. I, I think I mean yeah. if you look at it and I've started doing it and now I've, I've actually stopped doing it like the so you have a formal press conference you know particularly with the rugby and you know listening first of all to the quality of the questions you know so it's very hard you have a room of about 60 or 70 people there and the quality of the questioning is just appalling. It's dire. It really is. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. and I feel sorry for the people at the top table who have to answer these but, inane, but, but, but Neil, asinine I, I questions. Think the, and you're right. And I think the quality of questions are poor because the level or depth of knowledge is also poor. Uh. And they're, they're not, a lot of the, some of the journalists and media are not equipped with sufficient knowledge to be able to ask in-depth or serious or meaningful or penetrating questions. I think that's part of the problem. Well, there's also issues with, well, there's also two other things. There's also issues with access and there's also the refusal of the manager or captain to actually engage at that level. I mean, I've been in press conferences in Crow Park where you might ask a very, you might, you might hear someone asking what seems to be a very good question and the manager will just throw his eyes to heaven and go, you know, I'm not dealing with that. You know, I'm just not dealing with that. Mm. So, I mean, the next thing that's going to happen is the guy's either going to get up and walk out or else someone's going to ask some dumbass question like, but make, well, yeah, okay, you know, but make, but what are you going to do? Ask, yeah, the asking of the questions, particularly when you lose, is, is not asking questions. It's an interrogation. It's a pointing out of all the things you did wrong. So, okay, fine. That's we the nature do, of yeah, no, the no, no, it is the nature and fine and we do things wrong. But why should I be answerable to you as to what I did wrong within five, ten minutes after a game? I feel like saying, well, actually, Mick, it's none of your business. I'll talk to the players first. And and actually, I'm not answerable to you anyway. So why should I give you that that, uh, copy? If you you can get it, Tommy, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I remember I I did a kind of a player diary with Paul Kimmage. And uh, I mean, it was... It was very raw, and he had access to me. Is this eighty-seven at the eighty-seven? No, it was it was ninety-one, and uh, it was very direct. And you know, he'd get me. You know, it's literally ten minutes after raw the game, moment, a raw yeah. moment. And I'd, I'd tell him there'd be no, and you know, there was no hiding again. I was very, very direct in terms of what I said to him, and and some of the the, the management, you know, just said, didn't appreciate, you know, some of the things I said, and that was brilliant. And you know, to get access to that, that you know, so that. That's really where, you know, as a journalist, mm. that's where you want to be. Mm. You don't want to be 
you know, yeah. with 60 or yeah, 70 yeah, people yeah, yeah. asking yeah. these no. dumbass questions. Well, that, that, that is true, but I suppose that's a different, I mean, that's, that's your kind of, that's the first person column where you can actually, you have some kind of relationship with a guy and there's mutual respect. And I think it kind of comes back to mutual respect. I mean, I don't know whether we're, we're traversing two different eras here. I mean, the idea of going into a dressing room and asking hard questions like five minutes after a game. I mean, in my experience, to be honest with you, the material that guys would have got from that forum just the actual material that you'd read in a newspaper or hear on radio, it's not a whole pile better than what you'd get from sitting in, a, in, in, in an auditorium. But I think the, ba- the basic thing is that there has to be a mutual respect there in regards to a winning or a losing manager just needs to accept, OK, well, these guys are going to come here and I have to answer questions one way or the other. There has to be a mutual respect as well. You mentioned there like about kind of journalists coming in to try and enjoy the occasion. And you do have an element of fellas kind of getting off on it, which is ridiculous as yeah, well. Yeah. Guys, I, I, should, or guys are going in to do a job. I'm asking straight questions. It's not personal. Personally, I don't actually care who won the game. And I, I actually know? think that those questions are far easier to ask in that big room when there's 60 people as opposed yeah. to yeah. in a one-on-one. Oh, one yeah. 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 I, I do think that a lot of good material comes from the immediate unguarded mm-hmm. moment of the aftermath of defeat or victory, well, and, and that that's gone from GAA. But I think, but I think you're, uh, I'm not saying r- r- rightfully so, because I reflect on my raw moments uh, and stuff I come out with, and and I do try to be as guarded as possible. But I know there's been one or two comments that I've come out with, and all I'm doing is reeling off my feelings within that five or ten minutes. When in fact, that's box you know, office, may, not uh, Yeah, but <laughs> when in fact maybe. When in fact maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. Course, uh, I shouldn't yeah. be doing it, and yeah. not for, for my own sake and for my players' sake, because they should be the number one thing after a game. I remember after what was the Leinster final or something. I was on my second or third year with Dublin. It was exceptionally frustrating, and, and I came out with the comment. Well, I don't know if I have any. Somebody said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And well, I said, "I don't know if I have anything else to offer the team." That was just my feeling at that time. I was just so frustrated. We'd done everything. We ticked all the boxes, and we still didn't get over the line. But of course, in the longer term uh, point of view, I did feel like something else to give to the team. We had to get over that and get on with it and learn why we didn't win, etc., etc. But you just do come out of the thing. And sometimes it's when somebody gives you the opportunity to let fly with some of your feelings that that's all you're looking for really is just to get it off your chest. But it sounds like you think that somehow damaged you when actually, in fact, Mm. I would suggest that it makes you seem far more human to the general audience who are going, geez, Tommy Carr, he, he lives this. And so, mm. therefore, you're more likely to get a break from. Maybe you don't care about that, but no, the, yeah, the general audience no, is more but, but inclined yeah, to give you a break. The, the point about it is, you're not there to play to the general, so you get a break on it, or do you think you're there at the end of the day? You're there to get results, and you're you're judged ultimately on whether you get them or not. That's funny. Mourinho always says that he's every time he speaks post match, he's actually talking to the players mm. through the media. Yeah, through the media. That's yeah. the way that works. In, in rugby, obviously, I know Neil, you're a big fan of American sports and like the tradition there always has been the doors open the journalists can go and talk to whoever they want and the players because they're professionals are pretty much under contract and have to agree to work with the media in those circumstances and that's part of the the culture and the tradition is that something maybe we could look at in professional sports you're starting to see now the pre-match the cameras in the dressing room the sound is down but you can see who's giving the speeches and I really do think that it adds to the sense of coverage and occasion that we're getting from these matches now well if you look, say, at the 2011 um, World Cup, and it, it was pathetic. And if you had a, a, a situation where you could could have stopped it, like so, I was thinking of Lieberman and his last two matches in charge of the semi-final and the final, and he was just sidelined. Yeah, he was way over. It, it, it was embarrassing. So if I, you know, the players had come to him and sort of said, "Look, Tomas, you're out," or Mark, you're you're out. Um, you know, we we've it's just your, your eccentricity. We just can't deal with it anymore. Um, so look, you're you know titular. You're you're still the coach, but you're out. Um, and they should have done a deal to sort of say, okay, he's out, but no cameras in the in the dressing room. So something like that in that sort of a scenario. You know that's very hard to deal with because everybody could see like he was he yeah. was over he was over in the corner. You know, and he and he could see that uh, you know. Uh, Dusatoire was was calling the shots, and all the players, all the senior players, and that's happened before. That happened with uh, England in two thousand and seven, where um, Ashton was moved aside, and you know, just Delalio and the boys took over. So, yeah. Um, from a, from a NFL or from a Major League Baseball, it, it it's it's, an, it's incredible to see it. Like I mean, this huge, big Karenus dressing room, and 
there are, you know, 30 or 40 interviewers and sort of going around and you can't even have a shower and you have these dolly birds there sticking a microphone. Now, in fairness, the Americans are very good. It doesn't matter what, uh, you know, what creed or shade of color you are. They are very, very um, articulate and uh, the the in-depth interview. So you have to think very quickly after you either before or after you've had a shower. Yeah. You know exactly how the match. Yeah, well, well, what you're going to say and and go through the whole game and say, you know, and and you hear them like I mean for ten or fifteen minutes. I've seen them. You know, you have shows immediately afterwards, particularly in the states. I don't know if you've seen them, Jerry, but that's yeah, yeah. And they just go through all the players and what they say, and they cut out the good bits and or they cut out the bad bits and and fifteen minutes. You know, immediately after a tough game, it's uh, you know it's amazing how how how. Um, how in depth it is, and the access they have. I don't. Th- I can't see it here in any sport here. I can't see it ever happening. In particular, I'd say rugby would be the ones that would probably lead the way. But I can't. You know, ten, twenty years in 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 the future, I still can't see it happening. Well, yeah. that's the the fact that Neil, I, I'm changing my opinion on that. So if there was Dolly Bird sticking in microphone, <laughs> because because of my day, it was you know Martin Brehany and Vincent Hogan and all the fine heads and men. Each and all, and, all yeah. they're, they're still doing it as well. Um, I do remember one. Uh, Hurler, who was uh, an all-star and an inter-county captain, uh, sparking up a, a fag in the dressing room immediately after the game and saying, now lads, one of you has mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that I was having a, a post-match smoke. The kids are reading about me and under no circumstances are any of you to include that I'm having a cigarette. Uh, there was a, I think there was a trust, a, a kind of a, a, a bit of a trust at least that wouldn't exist today. Well, you saw things. <laughs> yeah, you did, like, but I mean, yeah, well, again, it's sort of yeah. It's sort of I suppose it's 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 like you say. I mean, it's it's there's a time and a place to use that sort of material or not at all, depending on the situation. <laughs> like I remember going into one particular dressing room. I won't mention the team, but again, a similar scenario. Like it was two guys in the show in the show after an incredible game. It was just one of these titanic kind of struggles, and it was two guys inside in the in the little shower cubicle afterwards, smoking cigarettes, like just spent, gone shagged and just all it was all they could do to, to smoke cigarettes but they had to have their fag legs straight away after the game but Mick is it fair to say that there are two different lines between amateur and professional sport in which the media will cross or not cross so when you just mentioned Jerry, you know there's a, an unwritten or a tacit agreement between this was out the there two. he was jabbing fingers going no need to mention this but yeah yeah I, but you know that the fact is that there is a respect for the amateur who is not a paid professional yeah, as I, opposed yeah. you, you can nearly impose on the professional's private life where yeah. I think in the amateur sport particularly GA you don't see no, that intrusion into no the I agree and, I, and, I, and I'd like to think and I mean in fairness I mean look I think you know sports journalism is the same as any other kind of journalism you apply the ethics in the exact same way and you you know you're as impartial as the next man but I would agree with you that like in terms of amateur stroke professional there has to be a, a delineation in, to, to some degree particularly when it comes to private lives and stuff like that um, but I mean again like like, like Joe was saying earlier just to some of the stuff that you'd see it's it was just extraordinary. I remember being in, in the dressing room after Offaly and Clare in Crow Park in 98 when the game was blown up five minutes early. And there wasn't many other journalists went across because it was a Saturday game, so it was only the Sunday reporters that time. I remember going across and being in the dressing room when the Offaly team came back in. And uh, it was just extraordinary to be there. Like, you know, they were going, we all go back out. We all go back out on the pitch. No, we're not. No, stay where you are. be fine. I remember yeah. one of the selectors winking and going, it'll be all right. Don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> and a week later, they had their replay on Turles and I think they won the game. There, afterwards, you know? there are things that, you know, the, the media shouldn't see and, and by the media then onto the general the public. public. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the dressing room... Um, there, there are certain things that have happened there in the dressing room where it just isn't right that anybody else see it. So the full range of emotions from elation to absolute depression, you know, after you after you win or lose a match. And some, you know, some dressing rooms where you've been in where you, you have literally you could have two thirds of the team in tears. And, you know, mm. I've, I've, I've been in those situations and nobody really should have a right to see that. I don't think. Mm. Um you know, it, it's uh, and then, you know, where coaches let off or, you know, the players let off on coach. And again, it's happened, you know, in the dressing room immediately afterwards, you know, and the coach would come in and sort of say, well, you were a disgrace. And then, you know, you, you, you'd back it maybe another match later where you'd, you know, you, you let the team, you know, and it's happened one one or two times where, you know, the coach is, you know, literally, you know, well, should I resign? You know, those sort of things. And nobody should see those sort of things. To the room. To the room, you know. And, you know, frank exchange of, of, of views. And nobody else, and there might have been one or two hangers on, you know, they, should, they, they have no right to, you know, to see that. 
and it's it, it might be purely a kind of an Irish thing. You couldn't see, you know, sort of you know the Baltimore Ravens and the San Francisco 49ers You know, like oh, should we resign or whatever? The Harbaugh's That's, are not going to ask yeah, that question. No, in the room. <laughs> no, they're not. But you know, so yeah, there are pros and cons. But I, I think, and the, the term we've used is, is sacrosanct. And I wouldn't like to see media intrusion uh, in any form uh, that that you see in the NFL or the Major League Baseball come into the you know in the next. Well, I can't see it happening, as I said, in the next twenty. 10, 20 years. All right, a couple of quick texts. Rory and Dingle says, if Charlie was up on the podium with Stephen Roach, I'm sure he turned up in a few winning dressing rooms as well. And having been a representative of every county in Ireland, that probably meant that most Septembers he could afford to finagle his way in somehow. Bubble Lions and Mallow says, Mick Foley's late for his own stag. I can't believe he's back in Benitez to come back to Liverpool. We haven't even got to that yet. I know Bubba. You don't, even, you don't, you don't want to know anything about Bubba. Um... A couple more. Wurzel says, Tommy can't have it both ways. He's complaining about stupid questions, but then doesn't want to be answerable when tougher questions are asked. I don't... No, I think it's... Is that a question? Is that a tough question, Ger? I do have to answer that. Can I opt out you of that You can opt question? out of that one if you want. No, I think it's not a case. I have no problem answering tough questions. It's the timing of the questions more than anything else. Because I do think you need a degree of time to gather your thoughts because all you're thinking of during a game and immediately after is the players, is the play, is the result, is the consequence of whether losing or winning of that result. It's not the interrogation of what you did right or did wrong. Because I've certainly been, I remember being asked a question after a game, and I don't mind admitting it, what did you think when so-and-so scored two goals and three points? Did you not think you should have moved? Hadn't even, I don't mean it hadn't occurred to me. I knew what had happened, but I didn't think two goals and three points. Jesus, he never scored two goals in three points, which is something I should have known, obviously, and hadn't realised the extent of the damage that the player had, had done. What was so your response? Did, uh, my it? response was, well, I bluffed, yeah. <laughs> I, I bluffed, and I, you know, I bluffed an answer because uh, that's all I could think of at the time. Um, and, you know, if I had a bit more time to, to think about it, it would have been a case of, well, I, I would have been straight and said, well, actually, I, I didn't see it. Uh, I didn't realise um, and I, I actually remember coming out publicly after that and excusing the player that I hadn't taken the man off and saying that, yeah, we should have seen it. It was our mistake. So I have no problem admitting when I make mistakes because I will make them. I will continue to make them. Everybody makes them. Uh, players make them. Management make them. Media make them. So they're they're there to be made. Yeah. All right. 53106 is the text number. The three lads are staying with us. We're going to talk a bit more about um, whether or not it's part of our culture not to be able to close games out. All right, you're very welcome back to New Stock Sports Saturday. If you want to get in touch with us this afternoon, you can text us on 53106. We have Neil Francis, former Ireland second row, Tommy Carr, former Dublin footballer and manager, of course, and Mick Foley of the Sunday Times uh, with us on our Saturday panel this afternoon. I want to play a bit of audio from John Giles speaking to us on uh, Thursday Night Football. Have a listen to this. You see, you can be a star player uh, and the media can love you and the public can love you without being a team player. And... uh, it, like they can, they can do all sorts of things and say, oh, he's a great player, that lad, you know. The Hollywood passes, that kind of all stuff. All that, you know. And, and it, but you, if you ask the fellow players, they might say, well, no, we don't think that much of him. He's, he's a star player, but he's not, he's, he, wouldn't be, he might not be a great player. Whereas yeah. when he leaves the team, then the whole team might benefit from it. That can happen. Uh, because you say, how can they do without your man? You know, he's a star player. But there's a difference between being a star player and uh, an influential player. And only the players really understand that sometimes? Yeah. Players know you better. It's like you, you only say to somebody, yeah, if you really want to know me, come and live with me. But players are like that. If you really want to know players, play with them. Players know players better than everybody else, anybody else. Because there's certain things in a match when you're up against it. One, you're, you're losing one nil at home in a match you should be winning. The crowd are really getting onto you. And uh, the full-back's on the ball. And the midfield player, if he goes two yards this way, he gets the ball and puts himself in trouble. He can go two yards that way and put himself out of trouble. The full-back is the only one that would know that. The crowd wouldn't know. They wouldn't notice it. But players know players better than anybody else. Neil, this came about because we were talking about, um, uh, it's, it's called the Ewing theory, where sometimes teams win something after they get written off when their star player leaves. The season after the star player leaves, everybody writes them off and somehow they manage to make up for the absence of the star player. And John was saying, I'm not really believing this. You know, he thinks more that it's down to the fact that the interpretation of star players is so often flawed in analysis. We just thought it'd be interesting to get everybody's take on this. Star players, having played with star players, do we not really understand who the star player is so so re- often? 
I, I think it's it's a very different scenario from um, you know from soccer to to rugby. You know, and and your star player on a, on a soccer pitch is completely different from your star player. And I think you actually have to make a distinction there. What 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 John was trying to say between your great player and your star player because yeah. they could be two completely different uh, uh, players. Um, I can't really think back to to you know some of the star players that we 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 had because more or less they were they were the one and the same. So the great players were the star players. So Gagan was definitely a star player and a great player. Yeah, and and you look at what's happening now. Like I mean, for you know, say O'Driscoll, who is the great player and the star player of not all, only of a generation, but you know, I think of all time. So you can't really say that. I mean, the dressing room and all the players know the value. Of, of having somebody like him on the side. Yeah. Are there unheralded <coughs> great players, maybe, or star players even? Sometimes the the guys in the front row or even people like we hear about the importance of hitting rooks, um, players who do it properly. There'd be, there'd be one guy who would, who would kind of stand out. And, uh, Easterby was, Simon Easterby was somebody that, you know, so if when he did something or when he said, he, he never said anything, but when he did say something, everybody, everybody listened to him. And it, it would only be, you know, sort of, in a, in, a, in, a, in a video editing suite when you realise, my God, look at the work rate this guy's, look what he's doing. And something would happen, uh, you know, on the side of a rock or some place, space would be closed down, just simple stuff, but he was always doing it. You know, why wasn't somebody else doing it? And that's what great players do. And, you know, the media wouldn't see it, but a lot of the time his teammates would. And only, I think, even deep rugby thinkers would, would actually realise the value of, of, of a guy of this guy to yeah. to to his team, uh, and he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been known as a as a star player, but certainly a great player. Um, you know, so only one of the sort of so as an example, you yeah. know. But it's very different, like I mean, what John was talking about there, because I mean, there are you know sort of good time Charlies who you know on the soccer field, and they can do all sorts of. I mean, going back all the way back to Gordon Hill, who you know was a you know <laughs> a rinky dink sort of a player, but I mean his value to the team was negligible. You know, um, so it's very hard to to bring it across to a rugby scenario. It works in Gaelic football, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose again, like you make a differentiation between a star player and a great player. Even the way people say it sometimes about Jeff is that Jeff he was a great player. You know, that sort of like he could. He sometimes he opened doors for other people. I suppose he's a hard worker, all that sort of thing. And then you have obviously you've got guys. I mean, Henry Shefflin jumps immediately to mind as a guy who does both. He's he's both a star and a great player. Um, guys like that. But I suppose I mean someone like Seamus Moynihan is another one actually that comes to mind in the football context. Like you know, a great player, but he was also a star, like a proper star. But um, yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I'd say Tommy would probably be able to speak of mm. with a little bit more authority. But, but I'm sure you'd find guys yeah. who'll hide. You know, and there are the words. It's yeah. you know, this is a particular hobby horse of mine, and your question is actually a study. To be quite honest, it's that in depth, uh, and we get fooled, and the media get fooled by some players. And I, I would call uh, uh, Neil was making the distinction there. I'd use the word an honest player, the real honest player who's doing it, who's doing the job of the work that he's meant to be doing, and he's doing it for the team. Uh, they're your great players. And I think the star players, the differentiation is that they're flash uh, rather than substance. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't, there isn't flash and substance, but it's a huge, the huge amount of honesty. I would no doubt recognise within two minutes, even on a rugby pitch, on a football pitch, on a soccer pitch, what John Giles is talking about. You see it in the mannerism. You see it in the way a, per, a player goes for a tackle or, you know, does he slightly miss the tackle? Does he slightly get there a little bit late just in case? Does he not go for that ball? I could see it in every sport, the real honest player. And that's why sometimes I get annoyed at the media, very annoyed at the media when they go to the management for blame. When we look at a game, and see that there are, is player responsibility as well as management responsibility. But when the player responsibility isn't undertaken, we still go to blame the management. And, and it is. And I'm actually glad you made that point. And Neil, you can help me here on this one. The Ireland, and this is typical now. The Ireland the Ireland Scotland game. We were beaten 13-12, isn't that it? There was three incidences. Now Brent Pope, George Hook, and Conor O'Shea were in the studio. There was three incidents in fairness. There was all, let's get rid of Declan Kidney. He's this, he's that, blah, blah, the usual, the usual stuff. But they came to the analysis of the game and they went along and it came to Conor O'Shea and he 
and showed it on the replays, outlined three things. It was Ron O'Gara failing to reach touch at, in the last few minutes of the game. It might have been Paddy Jackson earlier in the game, was it? It was from a penalty. It was a Ron O'Gara cross-field kick that yeah, was a very cross-field yeah, kick. Yeah, and then there was a ball that was kicked back to Brian O'Discoll on, on the ground. And he, said, and he said, these are the reasons why Ireland did not win the game. So that's player responsibility. But still, the boys were saying, let's get rid of Declan Kidney. So I don't understand that where we don't assign player responsibility for losing a game to players when they don't do the basics right and we still look for the the head of the management. So that's where I would be particularly hard on players and say, you be honest first, you do what you're meant to do because Declan Kidney created a situation for Ireland, or whether he or whoever did, created a situation for Ireland to have enough possession and enough opportunities to win that game, but it was the players that lost it. It's a couple of different... uh points on that I suppose you can't really sack the players because they're the ones you're going to have forever No but why should you sack the management because the players don't do what they're meant to do Ultimately it's about the culture of responsibility the person at the top of the tree Yes it is about the culture of responsibility but there are too many players out there and, and somebody who was I think it could have been John Tracy came out and made a statement that GA players are actually not that fit and they're not No Jerry Kiernan Was it Jerry? Yeah, right. let's, let's get Jerry Kier- no, that's okay. of that one yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So Jerry Kiernan came out and, and I got a host of text messages what did I think of this etc 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 I actually agreed with a, a degree of what of what he said, because if I compare the effort and the endeavour of some GA players compared to some of the individual sports of which I know, triathletes and runners and tennis players and all that, it is not commensurate with what uh, the GA players or the individual sports players are doing. And in team sports, there is room to hide and there are hiders and you can see them hiding. And did I play with them? Absolutely. And maybe there was times I hid a little bit myself. If I look back on it. So it is very, very difficult for and I think the the really good teams, the really winning teams are the where where the the squad or the guys on the team are 100 percent honest with themselves, number one, and then number two with the team. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the Ewing theory, if, I, if I'm right in saying, is this idea that, as you said, at the top, basically, that when the best player goes, the team actually grows as a result. And you do see that happening sometimes across different sports, that guys who maybe aren't getting 100% out of themselves because they can lean on Joe Bloggs here to my right, who's earning $10 million of a year yeah. or whatever, you know, or whatever. Um, I don't have to push myself. But then when the collective pushes themselves, but it's rare enough I'd say that happens. And I mean, if you look at Ireland on Tuesday night, for example, in, against Austria, you could say they they were missing their star player on on Tuesday night in Robbie Keane. Yeah. Now they lost it or they drew the game, but you couldn't fault any of the players for the endeavour they put in. And in fact, Shane Long came forward, possibly as now the first choice uh, striker for Ireland going forward. So, you know, maybe there is something in the Ewing theory, and certainly there's there's plenty of what John Giles said about yeah. it. But but Mick, there, there's there's another point too, and you mentioned an individual there. There there are two types of star players. One type of star player that needs you know a baby and a mind, and then mm. he has to be looked after, and he'll sulk if he doesn't. And we know we you know them. You've outlined them. They've been on GA teams across across the country. And then there's the star player, the Henry Shefflin or the uh, or any of those Kilkenny mm. players. There's no baby and there's no mind in them. There's no yeah. there's no to- throwing toys out of the pram. Mm. the way there was one or t- with one or two in Tipperary you wouldn't see what went on in Tipperary at some stages going on in Kilkenny because it wouldn't be tolerated mm-hmm. so the real honest uh, star players are the guys who were, who were actually doing it and the difficulty with the fellas who uh, need that baby is they suck the energy from teams and from management time and when sometimes when they're gone then there is a, a an explosion of of uh, of effort by everybody else. The negativity is gone, yeah, and, and an element of relief. An element of relief, and and others around him are not inhibited, yeah. uh, but by by his actions or his carry on. It's 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 a really interesting question and an interesting study. Is it impossible now to hide in rugby given the level of video analysis, or are there still ways to do it? I'd be I'd be in real trouble. <laughs> 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 it's uh, yeah. I mean. The, the basic requirement is, is I suppose, is honesty and competence. Like the, one of the reasons, and I'm sometimes pretty hard on some of the players, is you know that there there are no excuses. I mean, you know, with GAA, these guys are you know it's a different environment. But if you spend your whole day, your whole week, you know, honing your skills, getting fitter, doing weights, whatever else, there are no excuses for incompetence. And and we talked about some you know the the anomalies in that Scotland game. I mean that. It was it was kind of freakish. It was just one of those weird games. You could put it down to the fact that it was one of those weird games. Um, but 
you know the the rugby guys. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about the 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 Ewing Ewing factor, and it will be interesting to see what happens when when O'Driscoll does go because he is such an important component and part of, of of certainly the Irish team and when he's not there and you know we always talked about over the last four or five seasons when O'Connell or O'Driscoll uh, were not there so it will be interesting and, and not a little bit disturbing when the two of them eventually do go and, yeah. and it, to all intents and purposes the last year or so they haven't really they haven't really been there so will will there you know will we revert you know will there be a fortification say of the team dynamic you know, and, and will the team become more of a team? You know, when these guys are gone, and that's yeah. that's it depends again on whether the, if there's a new coach. You know, so it could be, you know, it could be a double whammy. So you have the your Ewing effect, so Driscoll's gone, and you have a new coach in place, and there could be a, a, a strong surge in the team performance. And you know, one of the most disappointing elements of 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 the team's performance this year was that they they lost games they should have and could have won. I mean, they could have could have won the French game, could have won the Scottish game, could have even have won the English game. I know it was it was one score in all of the games. Yeah. So, and that's what's disappointing, and that's why you can lay lay the blame, I think, on on, on kidney because there were certain things there that were that were just so far off kilter, and if they'd been corrected, you know, and he made three or four bad decisions, we all, we won't go into those now. But I mean, Tommy, an interesting point that you made that I didn't pick up on. You did hide yourself at times. Mm. Does this mean you've less sympathy with people you come across now or more sympathy with people you come across now who you think are hiding? I would have uh, less sympathy for people who are hiding because I think it's an opt-out. I think it's a... Even it's though a, you did it yourself? I, ab- absolutely. And when I say I didn't make up my mind on a Sunday afternoon, like, I'm going to hide in this game or I'll coast along. I knew looking back on certain games, yeah, I could have actually gone back and made that tackle. Yeah, I should have taken the ball off of John O'Leary. I shouldn't have waited out on the on the wing to get a nice easy ball or go up so I could get a score. Uh, so I have less sympathy because the players now have an opportunity, a huge opportunity, uh, and they pass up that opportunity if they're not honest. And I, and I have no doubt that there are a host of teams around this country and, and Mick has I've no doubt covered them all and seen them all come and go of where you will get a level of dishonesty not alone just on the pitch but in terms of li- of living lifestyle of, of committing to the ethos of buying into the, the team dyma- dynamic and the team ethos and we look at Sundays and you'll, you'll start the championship in, in a month's time or a, uh, six weeks time and you will look at teams and we will say God they look like they never played together you know and they've been training for years and years together but still they don't buy into the dynamic and that's a big problem for the GA because there's no there's no carrot and there's no stick for them to have to do that uh, and the tendency ten, the tendency may be a case of you know I'm only going to get two or three games out of this I need to get my name on the score sheet I need to get famous quickly because you know it's the, the, the easiest method but when you're at that level of the rugby where it's your job and you're getting paid and it's a, it's a different ball game altogether. I, I think the term hiding is uh, it's interesting. And I, I always think that the term putting your body on the line is always overused. But if you can put it to, say, playing in part de prince say, in the, in the 80s, and you have to make a distinction between hiding, uh, you know, which a lot of guys did, you know, and... I think courage is, is 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 a big part of the of the equation. So, you you play against a French side in the eighties or nineties in in Parc de France, and really you you had to courage was was the primary ingredient because if you didn't have that, you know everything else was lost. So certainly there were there you know when teams got absolutely hockeyed over in Paris in the, in the in those bad days, a lot of it was you know more than just well you know they've made a line break. Am I running as fast to the next breakdown as I should be? Uh, did I tackle this guy as hard as I as I should have? Did I did I not cover the space between where I knew the ball was going to be? These sort of things. So yes, you can certainly say I didn't try my hardest to do that. But would you actually opt out? You know, so there's a kickoff coming into you, and you know that your opposite number is going to come in, and he's a big, mean, nasty bastard, and he's going to take you out. So will I? Will I not just? You know, in terms of making the jump, not be there for not it. be there for mm-hmm. it, and that's, uh, and so you, you have to make a distinction between courage, you know, and sort of when you're hiding and you're doing your job, and then sort of hiding and not being there, you know, on sort of pitch, and 
I mean, a lot of guys played in those matches and just hid for the whole. And, and you can do that. And 40 points, 50 points is what you'll get, you know. And when you meet those guys now, does everybody kind of look at the ground and shuffle around or are you still actually best mates? <laughs> it's a, it is very hard because, you know, you, you bring guys into the side and they're not good enough. Mm. And that's the, that's the bottom line. And you have guys there who can, you know, you, you know, once in the old days, once you had 10 caps, you know, that meant you were, you know, a decent international standard player and that, you know, guys would have respect for you. Uh, but you bring in a new guy, he's not good enough, he shouldn't really be there. And you meet them afterwards and there is an awful lot of navel gazing, you know. And sort of, you know, he is, he's an Ireland international, but, you know, he just didn't cut it. Maybe a name only. Mm. Like, I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, I suppose just to... I don't think there's a player in the country at any level in any sport who hasn't in some way hid in inverted commas at one point in the game or not but the, but the difference between a great player and a great guy who hides is that the great player will recognise that he did it and he'll learn from it and he he won't do it as often again he may do it again but he certainly won't do it as often again and that's what makes players I, the ability to learn like I mean somebody who I don't think has ever hidden in his life is, is O'Driscoll who mm. has done things so far beyond the call of duty that you know, I remember watching him play against Montferrand uh, when Leinster weren't, you know, particularly performing and going after one of the biggest forwards I've ever seen, you know, and getting stuck into him. And, you know, that that sort of courage and that sort of quality is, it's so rare that, uh, you know, it has to Yeah, be. but what you asked the question then, Neil, why can't others have that courage? Because courage is, is not a skill, it's not a technical skill, it's an action, it's a mental decision to have courage. So you ask the question, if Brian, can, Brian O'Driscoll can be so courageous, uh, why can't... Tommy Bow or why can't somebody else I'm not it's saying a, Tommy Bow isn't it's a decision it is it's a decision you make though it's a de- you make a decision to be courageous you you don't make a decision not to be courageous it just doesn't happen for you or you just don't go there mm-hmm. so it's it's an important word honesty and courage and all those more so than the skill levels of players I think it's it's those aspects of the game in which we should judge great players yeah. or not so great players Lads on that note we've got to call it a day my thanks to Tommy Carr to uh, Mick Foley who's off on his stag and of course to Neil Francis as well um, I hope the, the lads are invited now for a quick one as well oh, sure. <laughs> you, you've got sure, the, we might make it three days I've, I've, you've got the handcuffs I've a bottle of Jägermeister outside <laughs> there. <Let's> <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and be right back